Capital Market Insights from ICMA. So good afternoon, uh, Bob. Good afternoon, everybody. Many thanks for joining us uh, again today. This is our um, monthly uh, market update uh, with our chairman from our Asset Management and uh, Investor Council, Bob Parker. Bob, thanks for, for joining us. If I may, I'd like to start with uh, the current news. We last time spoke about uh, uh, China. Uh, back then, it was about the tech crackdown. And now there's a new situation, which is more of a credit situation. Can you maybe say a few words about Evergrande? What's, uh, what's the status and what's the impact on, uh, on markets uh, over, or in China and, and globally? Yes, thank you, Arthur. Well, Evergrande, as most of the people listening into this podcast will know by now, um, is the largest real estate developer in China. It is also uh, the largest debtor uh, in China. So it has accumulated debts um, of close to 300 billion uh, US dollars. Having said that, of that amount, only 20 billion US dollars is denominated in offshore bonds predominantly in US dollars. The rest, the 280 billion US dollars equivalent, is actually loans from banks, from shadow banks, from trust companies, from suppliers, from clients, denominated in Chinese renminbi. Now, the problem is that Evergrande is over-indebted. It has had cash flow problems building up over uh, the last, uh, not the, just the last few months, but the last few years. And that really is a reflection of the fact that many developments, uh, and these are largely apartment blocks, are unoccupied or they have had challenges finishing them. And therefore, they have had challenges uh, receiving payments from the people wanting to buy those apartment blocks. So this is an issue of uh, liquidity. Uh, it is also an issue of a maturity mismatch because most of their assets are in long-term uh, real estate projects and most of their liabilities are in short-term loans. So it's a liquidity problem. It's a maturity mismatch problem. It's also a cash flow problem, as I mentioned, as cash flow has dried up and also reflecting the fact that uh, the Chinese real estate market which clearly had the characteristics of a, you know, a very strong real estate market uh, this time last year, but aggressively in 2021, uh, that real estate market has started to uh, deflate. And we've seen that in some downward pressure on real estate prices in China. So this debt problem um, really has accumulated over the last month. Uh, we've had a number of the credit rating agencies who have said that there is a high probability uh, that Avagrand will default. Uh, last week, it failed to make a coupon payment uh, on one of its US dollar bonds. I would also just add at this point that most of its US dollar bonds are trading at around 30 cents on the US dollar, so discounting a very high probability that its debt will have to be restructured. And its equity, which is uh, quoted in Hong Kong, is down over the last year by around 80%. So you know, the market is very clearly discounting a major restructuring of Evergrande debt. So the debt, the coupon that was not paid last week, there is a 30-day grace period. So as at now, Evergrande is not formally or legally in default. It has 30 days to, to make that payment. That's on its US dollar debt. 
on its Chinese renminbi or Chinese yuan debt. It made a statement saying that it has come to an agreement with bondholders, although the details of that have not been uh, published. So where do we go from here? And I think I saw a, a number of questions. Now, you know, the first question is, is there going to be a negative impact on Chinese economy? And certainly this is a factor, I think, deflating the Chinese real estate market. So I think that that will have a negative effect on Chinese growth. But I think to quantify that, that's, that, that's consistent with Chinese growth over the next six to 12 months, running at around five to six percent rather than running at six percent plus. So I think just to be clear, this is not going to result in a Chinese recession or a sharp downturn in the economy, but certainly it's consistent uh, with what we have been suggesting for some time now, which is a slower trend rate of growth in China. I think one point also to make is that will there be a negative impact on the Asian high yield bond market? And I think the answer to that is likely yes. At the moment, uh, the default rate in the Asian US dollar high yield bond market is running at around three to four percent. If Evergrande formally goes into default, that default rate will actually rise to over 10 percent. And the yields on Asian high yield bonds in US dollars the yield has jumped to around 14%. And if we go back about six months, the yields in that market were only at around 7%. So we've seen already quite a significant sell-off and a discounting of major problems in Evergrande. In terms of how the restructuring of Evergrande debt will take place, I think one's got to make a, a very sort of clear distinction between what's going to be the hit to equity holders of Evergrande, and that's going to be very significant indeed, so 80% plus, what's going to be the hit to, or the write down to uh, US dollar bondholders, and that could easily be 60 to 70%. For onshore bondholders, I think the write down is actually going to be rather opaque. So short term debt is probably going to see maturity extension. So investors and suppliers and clients of Evergrande who thought they had short term assets, I think those short term assets are going to be converted into longer term assets, i.e. giving Evergrande the time and space to restructure its activities. And in that restructuring, clearly a number of real estate projects will be taken over by other real estate developers in China. And Evergrande, I think, will be forced by the regulatory authorities to sell um, possibly a far sale, uh, i.e. a sale at distressed prices of its non-real estate assets. So I think there is going to be a negative effect on Chinese growth. There is going to be a negative effect, I think, to confidence, investor confidence in the Asian high yield bond market. Is there going to be a big hit to global fund managers or global banks? And the answer to that is no, because as I mentioned, of that $300 billion of debt, this is mainly a Chinese domestic issue with 280 billion being Chinese renminbi denominated and the bank exposures from the large international banks or the investment banks to Evergrande are now fairly limited. And one can make the same comment about the global fund managers. Now, obviously, there are some fund managers who specialize in emerging debt 
who have exposure, and there will be hits to client portfolios from the restructuring of Evergrande debt. But is this a systemic problem? Will there be contagion risk to global financial markets or global capital markets? Certainly at this stage, I think the contagion risk can be controlled. Could this be a a positive contagion in the sense that the slowing down of the Chinese economy might uh, temper a bit the the prices uh, hiking on commodities, energy prices as well. So market participants, I've I've heard, are saying in a way that if it's manageable and controllable, it might temper a bit the inflation expectation and uh, in a way cool off a bit this uh, uh, post-COVID economic boom, so to speak. Right. I think there are two issues. Uh, the first issue is Chinese domestic inflation. And that has actually been running at quite low levels um, at around 1%. What we've seen recently is a jump in the uh, producer price index, and that increased to over 9%. Having said that, I think the outlook for consumer price inflation in China is probably a rise to the region of 2 to 3% over the next three months or so. So yes, inflation in China is going up, but the quantum of the jump in inflation, I think, is fairly minor. And I think you're right to suggest that some cooling in the Chinese economy certainly takes some of the inflationary pressure out of the economy. That's, I think, the first question. The second question is, well, if the Chinese economy slows over the next one to two years to a trend growth rate closer to 5% than 6%, what does that mean for global commodity prices? And to some extent, we're already seeing that impact. And I would highlight what has happened to iron ore prices recently. Now, iron ore uh, jumped three to six months ago up above $200 per tonne. We're now back down around $100 per tonne. That partly reflects a decline in Chinese steel production, where the Chinese authorities are trying to moderate production uh, of steel, given uh, they are trying also to reduce their carbon print. And clearly steel is a, is a major generator um, of carbon. So the iron ore market has already come off. Uh, We haven't seen that yet in energy markets. So in energy markets, gas in Asia is trading at um, $22 per BTU. So that's very high indeed. We've seen Brent trading close to uh, $79 per barrel. So we've seen the cooling off in commodity prices in iron ore, but less so in the energy sector. But certainly, if China decelerates, as I I think we all think it will do, towards 5% growth for the rest of this year and going into 2022, that certainly, I think, will diffuse the upward pressure on most industrial metals and, to to some extent, energy prices as well. Maybe one last question on on this uh, case. Um, People are questioning right now, asset manager and global asset allocator, um, the investability of, of, of China given the, the, the measures uh, taken recently. And people are wondering what would be the treatment of foreign investors when it comes to Evergrande bonds. What is your take on this? Is there any predictability? It seems that Evergrande needs to be a, a case example that the Chinese government wants to make that they won't always bail out companies. Is there, is there a risk that it sends a wrong message to foreign investors if ever this, those coupons for, for foreign investors are not uh, uh, refunded? 
Well, I, I think the first point to make is that the probability of a Chinese government bailout of Evergrande is very low indeed. I think you will see, however, government intervention to make sure that the restructuring of Evergrande debt and the Evergrande business is done in such a way that the contagion risk to the Chinese economy and to Chinese capital markets is somewhat diffused. So I think it's going to be a managed restructuring, but it's not going to be a government bailout. So I think that's the the, the first point to make. Um, I think the second point to make is that clearly we have seen a raft of regulatory issues being taken in the Chinese economy over, really since the beginning of this year. Areas such as uh, education, parts of the tech sector have been impacted. And I think the the thrust behind all of this is Chinese government uh, wanting to reorientate the Chinese economy. There are areas they don't want a real estate bubble, and Evergrande is clearly tied up in, in that regulatory initiative. There were examples uh, in the education sector of parents paying very high fees for online education or tutoring. So they want to push back on that. The gaming sector and the social media sector, the Chinese government were concerned that too much time and money was being spent on that. So again, a pushback on that sector and a subset of that is increased regulation on the Macau gambling and uh, casino sector. Um, On the IT sector, which has received a lot of media publicity, I think there's a reorientation towards the government favouring areas uh, such as the development of the Chinese semiconductor industry, such as AI, computer hardware, IT infrastructure, whether it be in the communications sector, you know, whether it be building data centers, etc. And linked into that is the sort of decarbonization program of the Chinese government, which obviously has implications for them pushing the electric uh, vehicle business so or sector. So Rather than just sort of a regulatory clamp down on everything, clearly there are sectors which are negatively impacted. But conversely, there are other areas which have actually benefited from this reorientation of policy. So as a result, I, I would take issue with those people who say China has become uninvestable. I think you're just seeing a reorientation where some sectors are becoming more attractive and others aren't. Do we have anything to say about the PBOC's uh, liquidity uh, um, injection? I, I imagine it's uh, done in, uh, in, in, in the, the context of this specific uh, well, major, uh, major Evergrande uh, situation. Is there, is there anything, um, is that people were expecting it? Is there anything in terms of um, the government's position when it comes to helping out uh, on this situation? Uh, because there was a huge debate about whether they were going to make a case out of this or not. Mm. Um, what, what do you make of those um, uh, recent announcements? In contrast to, you know, most emerging market or emerging economy central banks, which have been raising interest rates, and there has been a sort of a raft of monetary tightening amongst emerging economy central banks. China has obviously done the opposite. And, you know, you mentioned the quite significant liquidity um, injection. And so, for example, last week, 
there was a liquidity injection of 120 billion uh, Chinese renminbi um, on a 14-day repo. Uh, so that was a very significant uh, volume. So PBOC is easing monetary policy, and I think it's injecting liquidity into the banking system, I think really for sort of two reasons. Now, the first reason is to provide liquidity at a time of stress when Evergrande debt is being going through this process of restructuring. So it's logical that they should be injecting this liquidity. Um, I think the second factor is that they are sensitive to the fact, and you can see this in the PMIs, and you know, the next PMIs will be announced uh, later this week, but clearly the PMIs are close, slightly under or slightly above, depending upon which ones you look, but around 50 and that is consistent with the slowing of the economy that uh, we described earlier. So the PBOC don't want the economy to slow down that much. And I think that the PBOC, the finance ministry, the Chinese government, I think would be comfortable with 5 to 6% growth. Um, I think that they would be uncomfortable if growth decelerates much below that level. And therefore, as an insurance policy, PBOC have been injecting liquidity. Now, that in turn prevents any upside in the Chinese renminbi. So that has been very stable between 6.45, 6.5 against the US dollar, and upward pressure on the currency has been taken away. Plus, um, it does support the equity markets. And after the equity market has underperformed uh, over the last year, recently, we've actually seen evidence of the equity markets starting to form a base. So if we look just at figures for the last month, the Shanghai Composite is now up 1.72%. And then if one looks at the more tech-centric CSI 300, no, that's up around 1% over the last month. But having said that, the CSI 300 over the last year has only had a gain of 6.7%. You know, and if you contrast that with the gains in um, other major markets, so for example, the S&P o- over the last year is up nearly 35%. So one feature of capital markets this year has been the massive underperformance of the Chinese market relative to the US and Europe. It's gone from being expensive to undervalued. And I think that this support from PBOC is consistent with the view that Chinese equity markets are now forming a base. I guess it's uh, quite convenient for global asset allocator to have emerging uh, markets, no? Like they maybe now is the time to uh, get out of American equities and uh, I don't know reallocate somewhere. I, I, I don't pretend to know uh, what, what should oh. be done, but it might, might be convenient that everybody's not moving at the you know in the same direction at the same time. Um, so the Fed is taking, of course, uh, is a completely different situation, t- taking a different stance. People are wondering if this event could um, slow down the Fed's uh, change of uh, tack when it comes to monetary policy, but it seems that they've, they've confirmed they need, that they need to slowly unwind what they've uh, introduced uh, to tackle the, 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 the recent crisis. Well, you've had a very clear statement from Jay Powell, uh, chair of the uh, U.S. Fed, Uh, that he considers the contagion risk from the problems with Evergrande as being very limited in terms of the potential impact on the U.S. financial system and uh, U.S. capital markets. And you look at the exposure of uh, U.S. banks to China, certainly that low exposure would uh, certainly sort of justify that statement that uh, Mr. Powell has made. The Fed's statement 
last week at their September meeting, um, I think was very significant. First of all, they have increased their growth forecast for 2022 to 3.8%. Previously, their growth forecast was far too low at 3.3%. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if actually at future meetings, they increase the growth forecast to 4% plus. And I think, you know, looking at US growth normalizing around 4% in 2022 is, is the central case uh, economic scenario. Likewise, you know, they've raised the inflation forecast for this year, uh, I think recognizing that we've had this rise in headline inflation to over 5%. Having said that, next year, they're forecasting inflation coming down to 2.2%. And I think if one wants to sort of look at areas where the Fed may be wrong or may have to change its forecasts, you no know, one could argue that perhaps inflation will be more like two and a half, potentially three percent next year. And the probability of it coming down rapidly to two point two percent may be too optimistic. So that's just observation on the on the economic outlook from, from the Fed. One then has to look at what are they doing with quantitative easing. And I think there was a very clear statement saying that they are ready to announce, um, and probably at their November meeting, a reduction in quantitative easing. The quantitative easing, as we all know at the moment, is $120 billion per month. Uh, that's $80 billion a month in US Treasury purchases and $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities purchases. There is a consensus uh, that they will reduce quantitative easing by around $15 billion per Fed meeting. So that would take us down from 120 billion currently by the end of March, that would take us down to around 75 billion a month. And, you know, Powell gave a fairly clear indication that they are hopeful that the quantitative easing program would actually end in the middle of 2022. Now, that's ahead of what was the market consensus. And the market consensus was that QE would end by the end of 2022. So that's been brought forward. I think the other area is what do Fed governors think or FOMC members think about interest rate increases? And now got nine members of the FOMC, i.e. that's half of them, who think that there will be an interest rate increase in the second half of 2022. And three of them think there will be two interest rate increases in the second half of 2022. So more members of the Federal uh, Open Markets Committee are now saying interest rates are going to go up next year. And again, I think that's sort of changed, uh, has had an impact on changing the market consensus to now discounting that interest rates are going to progressively move up over the next two to three years. Now, having said all of that, real interest rates remain negative. So even if interest rates come, uh, even if inflation comes down, let's say to two and a half percent next year, still got the Fed funds rate well below 50 basis points. What we've seen in the market reaction has been an increase in bond yields. So the 10-year US Treasury yield after the Fed meeting uh, has moved up close to 1.5%. If we just go back three months, you know, we were trading less than 1.2%. So the uptrend in US Treasury yields um, has reasserted itself. Um, you know, my view has always been that we would test 1.5 uh, by the end of September. Well, the answer is we're there. What happens in the last quarter of this year? I think the uptrend in yields does continue. 
um, but potentially at a still very slow pace. So, you know, a central case forecast, perhaps that, you know, in the fourth quarter, we move from 1.5% on the 10-year Treasury up to, you know, one point, close to 1.8%. And then going into the first half of next year, have a retest of 2% yield. So the pace of yield increase will remain fairly slow. Having said that, that obviously has an impact on constraining U.S. equity markets, given the relationship between bond yields and um, and equity markets. So any major advance in U.S. equity markets is certainly going to be held back by that rise in bond yields. Maybe to conclude, could we take a look at uh, European markets and um, the economic growth in Europe and also um, the how, how markets have performed and um, in the light also of the ECB who's taking, uh, who's not in a position to, uh, let's say, to, uh, to unwind uh, their, uh, their, their monetary policies uh, like the Fed. And are you worried that uh, from a European perspective, uh, we're not able to build ammunition for the next slowdown in the growth? Uh, um, and if we can do a bit of a, of, of uh, policy fiction, when would that be, uh, in your opinion? Well, I think it's a very interesting question because investors, I think, were somewhat unsettled by the announcement of the September purchasing managers indicators um, in Europe. So uh, PMIs came out lower than expectations. The manufacturing PMI was 58.7. The consensus was that it was going to be above uh, 60. The services PMI fell uh, to around 56 uh, in September from 59 in August. Now, I think you know, one point I, I, I would make is that if you sort of look at the last two years of economic development, you know, clearly 2020 was a year of economic shock due to the pandemic. The shock to Europe was very heavily concentrated in the second quarter uh, of last year. Uh, 2021 um, has been a year of recovery, and you know 2022 um, I think is going to be a year of what I would call trend above average growth. So it's not a return to a normal situation in 2022. It's a normal situation in Europe. Uh, if you look at historic growth rates, would be around you no know, two to two and a half percent growth. The ECB itself is forecasting growth next year of 4.7%. So uh, Europe growth uh, accelerating next year. Now, what we've had in this period of recovery recently is that you just don't recover in a straight line. Um, and inevitably, there is going to be some volatility um, in the economic data as the recovery takes place. And that has certainly been the case over the last two months. So we have seen worries back in July and early August about further outbreaks of COVID. Um, hopefully that is now behind us as most of uh, Europe is now uh, heavily vaccinated. So I think the concerns about COVID were probably a July and early August problem. More recently, we have had concerns about the impact of high energy prices and particularly the high price of gas. And you know, European gas prices are trading at around $24 per BTU. So that is very high indeed, and you know, is a, a significant jump from what we saw earlier in, in, the, in the year. Um, I think actually as gas supplies uh, come back uh, or increased with new supplies from Russia, new supplies from Norway, and also an increase in alternative energy supplies, I suspect 
that you know as we go into late October and November those hikes in gas prices will reverse. Having said that, that's clearly been a negative impact on the European economy in September. And then there is this vexed issue of supply chain disruption. And, you know, we are clearly seeing supply chain disruption. And, you know, that's across, you know, a number of sectors. It has affected the energy sectors. It's also affecting consumer distribution. So, no, that also has been disruptive. Now, I'm assuming, and I think that if you look at statements from the ECB, statements in America from the Fed, there is this view that that supply chain disruption, yes, it's a problem now, but as we go into sort of perhaps the, the latter end of the fourth quarter and going into the first quarter of next year, that supply chain disruption will ease off, as will labour market disruption. And I think, you no, know, given the shock to the global economy in 2020, 20 and the effort in rebooting the global economy in 2021 it's not surprising that the recovery is erratic and that's exactly what we are seeing at the moment so to answer your question we're seeing erratic data over the last month or two that may well continue for the next month or two but i think that the eurozone economy is still on track for four and a half percent plus growth next year uh, and with the UK on track for 5% and a number of other economies in Europe, like Sweden, also you know, on track for strong growth. Um, and I think one nice surprise actually in Europe has been the good recovery in the Italian economy. Um, and if anything, if one looks at where we're having positive surprises, um, Italy is certainly one of them. Well, thank you, Bob. I suggest we, we uh, finish on those uh, encouraging words. Unless you want to comment on the German election, it seems to be a non-event for markets. Uh, well, Mark, well, it's a non-event for markets because you haven't got clarity on who the next government will be. Now, you've got, you know, the SPD under Mr. Schultz, you know, have clearly won. Uh, they have clearly won by a very small margin. My central case remains that you will have a coalition of the Greens and the SPD and after some quite difficult negotiations, the Free Democrats will probably join that coalition. But you know, we have to recognize that there are big policy differences between the Free Democrats um, and the other two coalition partners. Um, I think one thing that is clear, uh, there was some discussion that the left, Dilinka, might be in the coalition. They didn't do very well. I think that they, they frankly, the probability of them being in a coalition is very low indeed. So. The central case is that Mr. Schultz will be the Chancellor. Um, it will take time to form a coalition. Don't forget that at the last election in 2017, uh, it took six months for Mrs. Merkel to actually get a coalition government uh, agreed. So I don't think this is going to happen quickly. Um, and because it's not going to happen quickly, the market reaction is, well, let's watch and wait. And I think that's the message from investors at the moment. Great. Let's let's do the same and uh, chat in six months then. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.